And this young man was excelling in school. He was studying the law. He was very smart. And he was likely headed to serve in parliament. He was really on track to be set for life. He became a Christian when he was about 21 years old. But not long after that, his life was turned completely upside down. His father's bank failed and his family lost everything. In his autobiography, this young man said, I, as an eldest son, 25, with all the world before me, lost everything and saw the whole future of my life turned upside down and thrown into confusion. He also said in his autobiography, God alone knows how my whole frame, body, mind, and spirit reeled and was shaken to the foundation under the blow of my father's ruin. Well, six months after his father's bank failed and his life got turned upside down, this man was ordained as a minister of Jesus Christ. And if you fast forward about 15 or so years in his life, by the time he was in his mid-40s, he was twice widowed and he had five children. This man also bore the scars of his father's debts his entire life. But he goes on his autobiography to say, taking a moral and spiritual view of it, I have not the least doubt it was all for the best. If my father's affairs had prospered and I had never been ruined, my life course would have been a very different one. I should have probably gone into parliament very soon and it is impossible to say what the effect of this might have been upon my soul. This man, however, became a spiritual giant, a man who faithfully preached and taught God's word despite all these challenges in his life that lasted throughout his life. Many of us love reading his works today. His name is John Charles Ryle, or J.C. Ryle. The man of granite with the heart of a child is what, how he was referred to. That's what a life of faithfulness looks like despite the heavy battle scars that he had. Just like Ryle's life shows us that humility, faithfulness, and obedience to God, even in the most difficult circumstances, can produce great blessings even for generations to come. The life of Joseph, the favored son of Jacob, also shows us that his humility, faithfulness, and obedience in the midst of the difficult circumstances in which we presently see him in our study of Genesis will show us that great blessings can come out of that faithful, humble, obedient life even when there's incredible difficulty and the greatest of blessings being the promised Genesis 3.15 seed himself who we have discussed. Now, just to get us back up to speed a little bit here, review-wise, as we studied over the last year, Genesis is written in sections that are basically divided by families or generations. The Hebrew word is toledot or toledotes. And we have seen that the toledot formula, we've kind of carved up Genesis, we've done the the Toledot of Abraham and Isaac and so forth as we've gone through Genesis. And we are now in the final Toledot of Genesis, the Toledot of Jacob. So the generations of Jacob, as it says in Genesis 37.2. And in Genesis 37, the story of Joseph begins. He was the favored son of Jacob. He was hated by his brothers. They were jealous of him. 
And they ultimately threw him into a pit, as we know. That was my little bit of art there as we got started. I didn't paint it. I found it on the internet. But anyways, out of that pit, Joseph was picked up by some traders, some guys doing commerce who were on their way to Egypt. And they took him down to Egypt and they sold him to Potiphar, who was the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. Pharaoh's essentially the king of Egypt, and being the captain of his bodyguard would like be like uh, being the head of the secret service to the president in the United States, a very important position. And in Genesis 38, by way of review, we looked at the story of Judah. It was a bit of an interlude. And Judah was the oldest son of Jacob who was still eligible to carry on the Genesis 3.15 seed. His older, three older brothers had disqualified themselves in one way or another. So uh, Judah was the oldest eligible son, but he had some unrighteousness issues in his life. But we saw at the end of Genesis 38 that he actually repented and recognized that he was a sinner and was restored to righteousness thus staying in eligibility, if you will, for uh, carrying on the line of the promised Genesis 3.15 seed. And as Lance alluded to, he did tee me up pretty nicely with Genesis 39 last week. We saw that Joseph was in Egypt. He was a slave to Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's bodyguard. We also saw in three different times in Genesis 39 that Yahweh was with Joseph in verse 2, verse 21, and verse 23. And because Yahweh was with Joseph, he was giving Joseph great success and basically blessing anything that Joseph touched. Potiphar noticed that and obviously wanted those blessings, and he trusted Joseph, put Joseph in charge of his entire household. And Joseph maintained his righteousness even when Potiphar's wife made some advances on him and he resisted her, but she got frustrated and kind of set him up to the point where she lied and made false accusations that he was trying to make advances or as the text says, make sport of her. And Potiphar threw Joseph in prison. It was a prison sort of affiliated or associated with Potiphar's house. So it was right nearby. Now, again, Joseph's in prison, in Egypt, in Potiphar's house, and Yahweh still shows Joseph favor in the prison and gives him favor with the chief jailer who puts Joseph in charge of everything in the jail. So Joseph is, his his humility in light of those circumstances, his faithfulness and obedience to God and doing what he knew was right resulted in great blessing on him and others. So the theme of my message is God blessed, and we're not done seeing the blessing, God blessed and will bless Joseph's humility, faithfulness, and obedience in the midst of those challenging circumstances, and God blessed and will bless others through Joseph's humility, faithfulness, and obedience as well. So we're in Genesis 40, Joseph's in prison, and The thing that Lance also, the point Lance also made last week that's going to recur quite a bit today is that Joseph was among Egyptian government officials, powerful figures in the government of Egypt. And we'll see that God will ultimately wind up using that. I don't want to steal other people's thunder in the weeks ahead. So Genesis 40 breaks up into four scenes, if you will, four scenes 
First scene is Joseph's circumstances in the pit. Potiphar's jail was like a dungeon, and in Genesis 40, 15, Joseph actually calls it a dungeon or a pit. So Joseph's circumstances in the pit, and we are going to look at five providential facts that enabled Joseph to rub elbows or continue to rub elbows with Pharaoh's officials. So let's pick up in Genesis chapter 40. We'll read the first four verses, Genesis 40, verses 1 through 4. Then it came about after these things, the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, Potiphar, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. And he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. So those are Joseph's circumstances in the pit. And there are five providential facts that are enabling Joseph to rub elbows, if you will, with Pharaoh's officials. The first providential fact is that two of Pharaoh's key officials sinned against Pharaoh. We saw in the text right at the in verse 1 that the cupbearer and the baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt, Offended there is the same word for sin that Joseph used when he was responding to Potiphar's wife in Genesis 39.9. So Pharaoh's two key officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, sinned against Pharaoh. Now just for a minute, a chief cupbearer, that's the person who is preparing drink for Pharaoh, for the king. He is probably testing out things that maybe he didn't personally make to make sure they're good, they're not poisoned, and so forth. The chief baker is Pharaoh's head cook. He is baking things for Pharaoh. And apparently baking in Egypt at that time was very sophisticated. I came across some references that said there were 57 different kinds of bread. So these are important positions. They are positions of trust. I mean, I keep using the the presidential references. Imagine being the head chef at the White House. You would have to have a security clearance. Besides being a good chef, you'd have to be a very trusted, responsible person. So the chief cupbearer and the chief baker are trusted advisors, officials, if you will, for Pharaoh. And when they sinned against Pharaoh, and it doesn't say what they did, but when they sinned against Pharaoh, Pharaoh was furious. So his two officials sinned against him. And what happens? Second providential fact, Pharaoh's two key officials arrive in the pit. Pharaoh's two key officials arrive in the pit. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials. And in verse 3, he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard. And according to Genesis 37, 36 and 39, 1, the captain of the bodyguard is Potiphar. So they're in jail in Potiphar's house, the same place where Joseph was imprisoned narrator's comment there it's very important and also if you look back at Genesis 39 20 Genesis 39 20 points out that the jail where Joseph was imprisoned was where the king's prisoners were confined so if someone did something wrong to Pharaoh or Pharaoh wanted to imprison someone he sent them to the jail in Potiphar's house so this also continues to show this connection between Joseph, he's rubbing elbows with the chief cupbearer, the chief baker, 
He's obviously known Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard, for a number of years at this point. So he's continuing to rub elbows with high-ranking people in the Egyptian government, and that is not an accident, as we will see later on and in the coming weeks. Third providential fact that enabled Joseph to rub elbows with Pharaoh's officials, not only are they there, but verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, Genesis 40, the captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them. So obviously Potiphar didn't completely lose faith in Joseph after the accusations from his wife. And um, he puts Joseph in charge of overseeing the chief cupbearer and the chief baker while they're in that prison. <laughs> That's a position of trust as well. And, and it's, it's, it's not really authority over them, but it's, it's to oversee them and to at some level serve them. And it continues to show in that situation Yahweh was blessing Joseph and was with him. So fourth providential fact that enabled Joseph to rub elbows with Pharaoh's officials is that Joseph, in fact, followed Potiphar's instructions as he always had. Verse 4, second half of verse 4 in Genesis 40, he, Joseph, took care of them. Joseph took care of them. And if you look in your, if you have a New American Standard, there's a marginal uh, footnote there where it says took care of them and it says ministered to. Joseph, whoa, Joseph ministered, excuse me, to the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he is in jail with them. He is attending to them. He is ministering to them. He faithfully followed Potiphar's instructions as he had in the past. End of verse 4 of Genesis 40, our fifth providential fact. Joseph and Pharaoh's two key officials are stuck together in the pit for a while. See, at the end of verse 40, uh, 4, they were in confinement for some time. That's probably not years, but it's probably more than a day or two. They were in confinement for some time. So Joseph's circumstances in the pit, we see five providential facts that enabled Joseph to rub elbows with Pharaoh's officials. So we'll move on to scene two. It says they were in, in confinement for a while. So the scene kind of moves forward and we'll call it Joseph's ministry in the pit. Scene two, Joseph's ministry in the pit. And let me read verses five through eight of Genesis 40. Then the chief cupbearer, the, then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt who were confined in jail both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, we have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So scene two, Joseph's ministry in the pit. The first point we want to note under, in this scene is that Joseph's fellow inmates each have dreams on the same night. That's unusual. That's an unusual fact. It's an attention grabber. It's meant to be important. And we'll see why it is important shortly. 
The other thing I want to note as we have read through the beginning of Genesis 40 is, do you notice the extensive repetition of the positions of these officials that Joseph is interacting with? If we just run through it very quickly, verse 1, cupbearer, baker, king of Egypt, lord, the king of Egypt. Verse 2, pharaoh, his two officials. You know, the, verse 4, captain of the bodyguard. Verse 5, cupbearer and baker, king of Egypt. There's this extensive repetition of their positions, which is really that underlying theme that Joseph is in the midst of Egyptian governmental power, which is exactly where God in his sovereignty wants him, as we will see. Nonetheless, we have Joseph's inmates having this dreams on the same night, and each dream had its own interpretation, which is also a core element of this chapter and even the next chapter. I don't want to steal Arnold's thunder. So Joseph's fellow inmates have dreams on the same night. And then we will look at, in scene two, five indications of Joseph's, Joseph's ministerial concern for his fellow inmates. Remember, the marginal footnote translated, he took care of them in verse four as ministered to them. So Joseph's ministerial concern for his fellow inmates. And the first point to look at, that first indication of Joseph's ministerial concern is Joseph's continued obedience to Potiphar's instructions. Beginning of verse six, we see when Joseph came to them in the morning. So the chief cupbearer, chief baker in prison with him, they have some dreams and Joseph comes to them in the morning. He's attending to them. He's overseeing them. He's looking in on them. He's checking on them. Joseph continues to be faithful and obedient to Potiphar's instructions. And then... Second indication of Joseph's ministerial concern for his fellow inmates, Joseph's observation of his fellow inmates' mood. Joseph's observation of his fellow inmates' mood. Second half of verse six, behold, he, it says he observed them. He observed them and behold, they were dejected. So Joseph goes in, he checks on them as he was supposed to do and he observes that they were dejected. Dejected is a word that I think we all have a somewhat of a feel for what it means. There's sadness. Someone is distraught. They're anxious. And, and, and maybe even an undercurrent of, of some anger or frustration. So Joseph observes the Pharaoh's officials and he sees that they are dis, they're dejected. They're distraught. They're anxious. Maybe a little bit angry. So... Being a good minister, having concern, following his, his human master's instructions. Third indication of Joseph's ministerial concerns for his fellow inmates. Joseph's inquiry regarding his fellow inmates' mood. Joseph's inquiry regarding his fellow inmates' mood. This is Genesis 40, verse 7. So Joseph asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, why are your faces so sad today? So sad, Joseph uses a, a different word than dejected. That's not the same Hebrew word. What Joseph sees, he asks him, why are your faces so sad? It's, it's, it's like a negative attitude or a troubled mood. These guys were, were troubled. They, 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 they were upset about something. There was, there was anguish in them. And so 
you think about it, between dejected and sad, their mood is hovering somewhere between distress, anger, frustration, and maybe even something like the blues. These guys were angry and bummed out at the same time. But why, why was that their mood? Why, why were their faces so sad? Joseph asked them, and the fourth indication of Joseph's ministerial concern for his fellow inmates, his fellow inmates disclose the reason for their mood. Beginning of verse 8, Then they, the chief cupbearer and chief baker, said to him, We have had a dream, and there is no one to interpret it. Okay, they're sad and dejected because they had dreams and there's no one to interpret the dreams. Why is that such a big deal? Why has that got the chief cupbearer and chief baker so upset? Well, why is that such a problem? We, we, we need to take a step back and think about the cultural context in Egypt back in those days. So one commentator, his name is Douglas Stewart, talking about Egyptian culture, says... The Egyptians were pantheists. Pantheist is a belief system in which all nature is thought to partake of the divine. Anything that exists is a manifestation of, or a part of, or an extension of a god. And Stuart goes on to say, the Egyptians were also polytheists. The Egyptians saw the universe as the habitation and expression of many gods and goddesses. Well, in that culture, dreams and interpretation of dreams was a big deal. Ancient Egyptians believed that dreams were one way that the small g gods communicated with people. And so dream interpreters, it was like a profession. There were professional dream interpreters around. And in Pharaoh's court, which is where the chief cupbearer and chief baker would have been, there would have been professional dream interpreters around. If they had some dreams, they would have gone to the professional interpreter and said, hey, I had this dream. Here's what it was. Tell me what the small g gods are trying to say to me. Well, in prison, they did not have that luxury. So they were dejected. They were sad. And they didn't know what the small g Egyptian gods we're trying to tell them. So they tell Joseph that they're sad, they're dejected because they can't get their dreams interpreted. And Joseph responds. Joseph's God-centered follow-up with his fellow inmates. Joseph's God-centered follow-up with his fellow inmates. And Joseph asks them, end of verse 8, he says, do not interpretations belong to God? Tell it to me, please. So Joseph asked them a rhetorical and loaded question. Joseph knew the answer to that question. He says, do not interpretations belong to the Elohim, the one true and living God, not some interpreters. Joseph knew that if any dream, he had already interpreted some dreams in his life as well. He knew that any interpretations were coming from God. They were a gift from God. They were by the grace of God disclosed to us at all. It wasn't some profession. And Joseph, in his answer, do not interpretations belong to God, really rejected the notion that men could be trained to interpret dreams. Interpretations belong to God, and they're a gift from God. They're not from Egypt's small G gods. They're not from these professional interpreters. But Joseph followed up with them in faith. Remember, 
Yahweh was with Joseph. Yahweh is still with Joseph. And Joseph is trusting that God is going to give him the correct interpretations of these dreams. And he boldly basically commands the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, end of verse 8, tell it to me, please. That is faith. I want to stop for a moment, though, and just think about a little bit of application here. If you notice a brother or sister in Christ and they're looking troubled, they're looking dejected, they're looking sad, maybe it's not even a brother and sister in Christ, just anyone, ask them what's going on. Why, are your face, why is your face looking so sad? Find out what's going on with them. And just like Joseph did with Pharaoh's officials, listen to them. And it's a chance for us to show Christ-like love to people in need whether they're brothers or sisters in Christ or not. So it's just a good example for us to follow, to ask those questions, find out what's going on with people when they don't look right, and show them the love of Christ. So anyway, scene one was Joseph's circumstances in the pit. Scene two in Genesis 40 is Joseph's ministry in the pit. And we will move on to scene three. Well, there's a little picture of Joseph interacting. Again, I found this on the internet. It's not the greatest picture, but Joseph interacting with the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. But scene three, uh, it's not really a change in the overall setting. They're still in jail. It doesn't indicate that any particular advancement of time has occurred, but the focus is changing. So I'm calling it scene three, Joseph's dream interpretations in the pit. And this runs all the way from verses 9 to 19. And scene three can really be broken up into two parts. I call them sub-scenes or fancy word, vignette. Vignette number one, Joseph interprets the chief cupbearer's dream. Joseph interprets the chief cupbearer's dream. And so we have a little picture here that I like. Joseph's interpreting the chief cupbearer's dream. And let's read verses 9 to 11 of Genesis 40. So the chief cupbearer told, told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there was a vine in front of me. And on the vine there were three branches. And as it was budding, its blossoms came out and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now, Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes, squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. So that's the chief cupbearer disclosing his dream to Joseph. I hope you like my picture. Second little factoid in this vignette is Joseph giving the interpretation. Joseph giving the interpretation. Verses 12 and 13 now, uh, then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation of it. There are three, the, the three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. So taking all of that together, we have Joseph, the chief cupbearer disclosing the dream to Joseph. It's pretty matter of fact. There's, there's vines, there's grapes, there's, there's, he's squeezing the grapes into Pharaoh's cup and he's giving the cup to Pharaoh. That is much like what his official duties would be as the chief cupbearer. There's really a matter of factness about it. And in Joseph's interpretation, which again is by faith, he's trusting the Lord's going to give him the interpretation. He says, 
the three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. That is a key expression in Genesis chapter 40 that is going to be repeated in verse 19 and verse 20. It's a word that can have a variety of meanings from the Hebrew, including to lift up or to elevate. It can be to carry something or to bear weight. It can even mean to forgive. There are a number of verses in the interest of time. I, I'm going to move on from that, but if you want the backup for that, I'm glad to give it to you. But anyways, Genesis 40 appears to actually interpret lifting up their head as something of a kind of a judicial situation where, where they are being summoned before an official for judgment, as we will see. Where the chief cupbearer and the chief baker will be brought before Pharaoh and he will lift up their heads and judge them based on whatever it is they did, which is not revealed. For the chief cupbearer, he's going to be restored as Joseph's interpretation shows. Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office and you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom. The chief baker is not going to turn out so well as we will see. Now, before we get on to the chief baker, I know our pastor uses the phrase sanctified imagination. Let's use a little bit of sanctified imagination here. So Joseph has interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream, and he's interpreted it positively. He's going to be restored. He's essentially going to be found innocent. So Joseph looks at that, and, and he might say, okay, I've relieved the chief cupbearer's distress, his dejection, his sadness by interpreting his dream, and I've actually interpreted it positively. So Joseph may be looking at this situation and think, maybe the chief cupbearer thinks he owes me or he's indebted to me a little bit. So after Joseph gives the interpretation, Next, next point under vignette number one, Joseph's confident requests to the chief cupbearer. Joseph's confident requests to the chief cupbearer. And Joseph in verse 14, after he's interpreted the dream, he says to the chief cupbearer, only keep me in mind when it goes well with you and please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. So it's, these are not commands, these are just requests. And there are sort of four rapid-fire requests that Joseph gives here. Keep me in mind, remember me. Another key word in Genesis chapter 40, as we will see. He says, keep me in mind, do me a kindness. That word for kindness there is hesed, loving kindness, steadfast love. He is asking the chief cupbearer to do him a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh. Put in the good word with Pharaoh for me. I interpreted your dream. I'm a good guy. And the purpose of that would be to, fourth request, get me out of this house. Joseph wants to be free. He was not put in Potiphar's jail because he committed a crime. He was put in Potiphar's jail because of some lies. He wants to be out of there. Maybe a hint of impatience or frustration on Joseph's part. Hard to say, but... You know, he's not sinless, so it's possible. Maybe a hint of frustration or impatience. And he goes further, and we'll see this, where Joseph not only makes confident requests to the chief cupbearer, those are the requests, he also gives supporting reasons for his request, supporting reasons for his request in verse 15. 
He says, for I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews and even here I have done nothing that they should have put me into the dungeon or the pit. That's why I'm calling it the pit. So he gives reasons. He says, I was taken away from my family and my homeland in the land of the Hebrews by these Midianite traders. They brought me down here and sold me to Potiphar. Then I was thrown into Potiphar's pit, a second pit in Joseph's life for something I didn't even do. So again, maybe a little hint of impatience there in Joseph's part. But the fact of the matter is he has interpreted the dream positively for the chief cupbearer. He's relieved the chief cupbearer of his anxiety. And maybe there's a sense of indebtedness on the part of the chief cupbearer to Joseph. And he makes these requests. So that's the vignette number one, Joseph interpreting the dream of the chief cupbearer. We can move on to the second vignette in scene three, Joseph's dream interpretations in the pit. Joseph interprets the chief baker's dream. What about the chief baker? What, what happened to him? So the chief baker, it sounds like from the text, was probably clammed up and was not ready to share his dream with Joseph. But verse 15, or excuse me, verse 16, when the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he, the chief baker, said to Joseph, then he discloses his dream. So the motivation for the chief baker to ask Joseph to interpret his dream is what we see there at the beginning of verse 16. The motivation for the chief baker to ask Joseph to interpret his dream, he saw that Joseph interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream favorably. He says, okay, this can't be that bad. So he discloses his dream to Joseph. Now another nifty little picture there. The chief baker discloses a dream, middle of verse 16. He said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head. And in the top basket, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head. That's the dream. Nice little picture. We see the birds getting in there and chowing down on whatever baked goods were in the top basket for Pharaoh. Then Joseph gives the interpretation of that dream. Verse 18. Then Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. The same three days is for the chief cupbearer. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. But he adds a couple more words. Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and will hang you on a tree and the birds will eat your flesh off you. So again, lift up the head can be this summoning before some authority or for some judge for, for a judgment, for adjudication. So <clears throat> Joseph says, the Pharaoh is going to lift up your head and he adds, from you, from you. And that seems to indicate a beheading. He's going to lift up his head, beheading. And not only that, then he is going to hang the beheaded body on a tree and the birds are going to eat the chief baker's flesh. It's gruesome. It's graphic. The chief baker doesn't respond. Joseph's not going to make any requests of him. He's not trying to win friends and influence people with an interpretation like that. So 
Moses doesn't waste any time. He wants the reader to get to the climax of the chapter and really help us to pull it all together and see that by the grace of God, Joseph is a accurate, faithful, capable interpreter of dreams by the grace of God. So that's the end of scene three. We had Joseph interpreting the dreams of the chief baker and the chief cupbearer. The chief cupbearer is, uh, the chief uh, cupbearer is going to be restored. The chief baker is going to be killed according to Joseph's dream interpretations. Now the scene actually does change. It moves from Potiphar's prison to Pharaoh's court. And it's a scene for, I call it, Joseph remains in the pit. And you could put a parenthesis there if you want, while his dream interpretations are being fulfilled. While his dream interpretations are being fulfilled. This, is, this last section of Genesis 40 from verses 20 to 23 is 100% narration from Moses. Joseph, as far as we know, is still in prison, but the chief baker and the chief cupbearer are now going to be in Pharaoh's court. So let's pick it up and read. Additional providential, my heading is additional providential facts important to when and how God will ultimately use Joseph to save the family. Providential fact number one, let's pick it up in verse 20. Thus it came about on the third day, three days after Joseph interpreted the dreams, came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday. And he made a feast for all his servants. Now we don't know if Pharaoh's birthday meant his actual date of birth or the date he became Pharaoh. It really doesn't matter. He threw a feast for all his servants. And you're thinking, what a guy, right? Well, We know Joseph's dream interpretation already, so maybe he's not that good of a guy. But at any rate, Pharaoh throws a feast for all his servants, and he judges his two key officials. Pharaoh judges his two key officials. Let's keep reading. Verse 20, second half. And he lifted up the head. That's the third time we've seen that in this chapter. He lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his office and he, the chief cupbearer, put the cup into Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. So Pharaoh has this feast for all his servants and he lifts up the head of his two key officials, which is is indicative at least here in Genesis 40 of like an act of judgment of some sort. He lifts, but, but it even goes further than that. He lifts up the chief cupbearer. He elevates him. He restores him to his original position as the chief cupbearer. And he also judges or lifts up the chief baker, but that lifting up means he's being hung or lifting off his head and then hanging him. So Lift up can mean a number of different things, but it's judgment, restoration for the chief cupbearer, death for the chief baker. Pharaoh, and this is why I say he's probably not that good of a guy, he did this where? What are the last three words of verse 20? Among his servants. This was like a deterrent killing by Pharaoh. He wanted anyone else. The chief baker must have done something that was maybe poison his food or something like that. There was some plot to to poison Pharaoh's food. And Pharaoh wanted to deter anyone else, anyone else of his servants, 
They might even think about doing something nefarious. So he did this among his servants to make a point, to have maximum deterrent effect. Now, the chief baker, the chief cupbearer is restored, key point, exactly as Joseph interpreted. The chief baker was killed exactly as Joseph was interpreted. The reader of Genesis 40, by the time you get to this point, would have understood that Joseph's dream interpretations were correct. It, it, Moses is stating the obvious at the end of verse 22, or excuse, yeah, at the end of verse 20, am I in Genesis 40 here? Moses is stating the obvious at the end of verse 22, excuse me, when he says, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. The reader already knew that, but that is a key important point in Genesis chapter 40 that is going to take us into Genesis chapter 41. Moses wants to cement it into the mind of the reader that Joseph is a spokesperson for God. God revealed truth through the dreams of these Egyptian officials and the, and the interpretations of Joseph, which in fact were prophecy. Joseph's interpretations were prophecy. He stated things that were actually going to happen, and three days later, those prophecies were fulfilled. These were, in a sense, revelatory dreams. Not that common in Scripture, but they do happen. But the bottom line is, that's what Moses wants us to understand. That's how Joseph is going to be seen going forward into chapter 41 and beyond. And that's how Joseph is going to save the family. These are key providential facts here that Joseph's interpretation was correct. Now, we come to the end of the chapter Last heading under additional providential facts important to when and how God will ultimately use Joseph to save the family. Verse 23, and the heading is Pharaoh's chief cupbearer completely forgets Joseph. Completely forgets Joseph. Now remember back in verse 14, after Joseph interpreted the chief cupbearer's dream positively, he says, Keep me in mind when things go well with you. Do me a kindness. In today's language, do me a solid. Talk to Pharaoh for me. Tell him I'm a good guy and so forth. And now get me out of here. Well, that word keep me in mind basically means remember. And we come to verse 23. And what does it say? Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him, but forgot him. That's not simply, it slipped my mind. Oh yeah, now I remember. He completely forgot. It would have been enough for Moses to say he did not remember, but he adds in, and he forgot. So it's like double emphasis, really, to say he completely forgot. And Genesis chapter 40 ends with Joseph in exactly the same place where chapter 40 be began. He remains in the pit. He remains in prison. So we might be wondering, why is God allowing this to happen? Joseph might be wondering, why is God allowing this to happen? 
Why is God allowing Joseph to languish in prison for something he did not do? Not exactly the resolution we were expecting. It's not really a resolution at all. It's a cliffhanger. You have to come back next week and hear Genesis 41 when Arnold teaches. But it also leaves us with some tension, which is, through which son of Jacob is the Genesis 3.15 seed going to pass? I mean, Joseph's righteous. He's the favored son of Jacob. But he's got a little problem. He's in prison. But Joseph is around the most powerful men in Egypt, which is exactly where God wants him. God's sovereignty and God's providence Joseph is exactly where God wants him. Might be teaching him a little bit of patience. Wait for me. I've got all this covered. I got the timing covered. And we're going to see all of that unfold in Genesis 41 and beyond. One final fact to note about Genesis 40. Anyone know how many times God was mentioned in the chapter? Once. In Genesis chapter 40 and verse 8. Do not interpretations belong to God. But was God really missing from all 23 other verses? Absolutely not. God is working behind the scenes, and there is no doubt about that as we look at the larger story of Joseph, including in the weeks to come. So to conclude, like J.C. Ryle, who despite all of those challenges in his life, he remained humble He remained faithful. He remained obedient to his ministry call. He loved the church. He wrote amazing books and tracts and greatly blessed generations to come, including our generation some, you know, 150 years later. Similarly, Joseph has these extreme challenges in his life. But God is with Joseph. He is working through Joseph. God is even causing pagan officials to favor Joseph. And we'll continue to see that in the weeks to come as we work through Genesis. And J.C. Ryle and Joseph are both beautiful illustrations of many times in our lives where things are difficult, things are challenging, things aren't the way we want them. We have trials going on, but God is faithful and he is with us working in the details all the way and we have to trust him. So, Last slide, a couple slides, a few take-home lessons beyond what I just said from Genesis chapter 40. Take-home lesson number one, I believe these are on the handout. Humbly submit to the circumstances wherever God has placed you or wherever the Lord has placed you. Humbly submit to those circumstances. Number two, strive to demonstrate godly character and not complain even in the midst of negative circumstances, that parenthetical applies to me as much as anyone else in this room, right? (laughs) Three, submit to and obey those in human authority over you. For example, bosses or government officials, unless they ask you to do something that directly violates a clear command of scripture. Number four, be patient. Have an eternal viewpoint. Psalm 27, verse 14, wait for Yahweh. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Yes, wait for Yahweh. He is working as he did with Joseph, as he did in Ryle's life, even in those seemingly negative circumstances in your life. A couple more. God's blessing 
of our obedience may not be immediate. Psalm 19, verse 11, second half, in keeping them, in keeping the law of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord, the statutes of the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, in keeping them, there is great reward, but those blessings may not be immediate. God's not an instant gratification God. He does it on his own time frame. But ultimately, God blesses and will bless your humility, my humility, faithfulness, and obedience, even when we're in difficult circumstances. And lastly, just like the chief cupbearer forgot Joseph, people may forget you, but Yahweh never forgets his children. And speaking of those who are humble, faithful, and obedient, there is one who was perfectly humble, perfectly faithful, and perfectly obedient to his father's plan, and that was Jesus Christ. We heard the choir sing this this morning. Jesus humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, so he could die and take the punishment for the sins of everyone who would ever believe, that we might be saved from our sins through turning away from them in repentance and placing our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. If you haven't done that, if you haven't repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in Jesus as your only Lord and Savior, I encourage you to do that today. We have some table questions on the handout. Let me close us in prayer and thank you very much for listening. Heavenly Father, we come before you and Lord, just these amazing examples before us of humility, faithfulness, and obedience. We're studying Joseph and he certainly exemplified those characteristics. He was in awful circumstances from a human standpoint, but you had him right where you wanted him and he submitted he remained faithful to what you had him there for and he obeyed not only you in terms of turning away even from Potiphar's wife but he obeyed his human master as well and you blessed him we look at a person like J.C. Ryle great difficulty in his life and you greatly blessed him for generations even to come and of course we look at our Lord Jesus perfectly humble perfectly faithful perfectly obedient and you have blessed millions and millions of people with eternal salvation through his obedience and through his faithfulness. Lord, I pray that your spirit would work in all of us here and enable us and empower us to demonstrate even a modicum of the humility, faithfulness, and obedience that these men showed and that we would do it all for your glory. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.